This Christmas season, please consider gifting an unfound YouTube channel membership or Patreon membership to that true crime fan in your family. On August 11th, 2017, Unfound first released its coverage of the disappearance of Aaron Gilbert, an episode called The Last Place. She was a 24-year-old woman from San Francisco. She was athletic and loved to shoot pool. During 1995, she was in Anchorage, Alaska, spending time with family. On July 1st, she went on a date to the town of Girdwood. While there, Aaron and her date got separated. She was never seen again. Today, Unfound revisits Aaron's case with new commentary to hopefully reignite inquiries into what happened. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. be a big world traveler. Even if I hit Powerball, I don't think I'd venture outside the confines of the United States. Does that make me an arrogant American? I mean, I don't speak any other languages. I haven't even been to all 50 states yet. And then there's that whole flying thing. Nine or ten hours in a jet? Forget it. But it could also be that I read the news like all of you. A person could start to wonder whether there is any place a person can have a safe vacation. For example, Cancun, a popular place for spring break at one time. The drug wars in Mexico are slowly taking over that beach town. The Philippines, an exotic vacation destination with beautiful islands and plenty of history concerning World War II. But these days it seems to only get into the news due to bombings. Europe. It's almost on a weekly basis that terrorists pop up in the news, hijacking of a truck and running dozens of people over, the Paris attack involving the Bataclan Theater, and yes, even here in the United States, its number one vacation destination, Orlando, had the Pulse nightclub attack. Where is a person supposed to go to have a good time without any worry? I bring this up because Erin Gilbert was on a kind of vacation. Yes, she was working in Alaska but it was a chance for her to see a new part of the world and to spend time with her family. And as she left San Francisco to move to Anchorage, I'm sure running into any danger was the last thing on her mind. And in fact, going to Girdwood on July 1st, 1995, it's the last place a person would think a disappearance would occur. But it did. And her family is still looking for answers 22 years later. However, it could be that Girdwood wasn't as safe as everyone thought. And now a summary of the case. This is brought to you by my friend Megan Goodsight, charlieproject.org. Erin had resided in Alaska for about a year prior to her disappearance. Before then, she lived in San Francisco. She had decided to travel north to spend time with her sister Stephanie, whose husband was in the Air Force in Anchorage. This would also give Erin some time to get to know her sister's children, who were very young at the time. Erin got a job on the base as a nanny and seemed to be enjoying her time there. The Tuesday prior to her disappearance, Erin had visited a local bar by herself to shoot pool. While there, she met Dave Combs, a local young man in the metal business. They hit it off. And a few days later, Dave called Erin to see if she'd like to go to the Girdwood Forest Fair, 
40 miles south of Anchorage. She accepted. July 1st, he picked her up. While in Girdwood, Day's car developed problems with the battery dying. He claims he went to go find jumper cables at some cabins nearby. When Dave returned, Aaron was gone. Searches conducted in the days after turned up no signs of Aaron, although a couple of vendors at the fair insisted they saw and talked to Aaron on July 1st. Since 1995, there have been no new leads in Aaron's case. According to public reports, Dave Combs is not considered a suspect in her disappearance. Aaron's family believes she met with foul play and is deceased. The interview for this episode is with Stephanie Juarez, Aaron's sister. Unfound News. I recorded the new part of this episode in Greeley, Colorado. I'm here to appear in a series concerning the murder of Janelle Matthews. It is called The Girl on the Milk Carton, and it will be coming out in 2024. Next, to finish out 2023, Unfound will be featuring a new disappearance next week. Then we will complete the year by airing update episode number 16. Lots to tell all of you, of course. Finally, by the time you hear this, I will be in Pennsylvania. I will be there until around December 27th. I plan to do a lot of stuff and see a lot of people. I'm very fortunate to have on this episode of Unfound, Stephanie Juarez, sister of Aaron Gilbert. Stephanie, welcome to Unfound. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Stephanie, tell the listeners a little bit about your sister, Erin. Maybe to start out, was she your older sister or younger sister? You know, there are three, there were three sisters. There's myself, um, who's the oldest, Catherine, who is in the middle, and Erin was the youngest sister out of of all three of us. And the the age difference between all three of you? Uh, I was born in 1967, Catherine was born in 1970, and Erin was 1971. So just a few years between all three of us. All right, so about about four years. What was Erin like? If the listeners uh, would have had the chance to meet Erin, what kind of person would they have encountered? Uh, they would love her. Um, she was an athletic person, very outgoing. Um, she was the person if you walked into um, a party, she would be the one that would walk up to you. Um, she was always very interested in what you were doing, um, just had a kind word to say about everybody, um, but also not afraid to ask a tough question, if you will. Uh, she was very athletic, uh, very smart, um, you know, had, I believe, a, probably a 3.9 or 4.0 in high school, um, star of most of the teams that she played on, basketball and volleyball and track and softball. Um, I had a, a recent uh, email from a friend of hers who said uh, when they played softball, they were not very good, but Aaron was really the team, and so if they actually caught the ball, they just threw it to Aaron to make sure that they made the play, so I thought that was kind of a funny story. Um, she was interested in poetry um, and photography. She modeled. Um, we always sort of joked. Um, she modeled in San Francisco and did some clothing lines and some things, but she actually made a lot of money on, on being a hand model, so we always teased her about that. We're like, yeah, you're this really famous model, but you actually make more money being a hand model, <laughs> so we always thought that was funny. Um, that, that's interesting. Really, 
yeah, just a really likable person. She had a lot of friends. Um, so it was really tragic when she um, became a missing person because, you know, we were all just heart sick about it. We were very close sisters, close family. We did everything together. She was a great aunt to my kids, um, took them to museums and played with them all the time. So she was really just a, a missing link um, in our family and still is today. So, Is there maybe a particular memory that, that comes to your mind when you think about her, maybe like from a vacation or, you know, maybe a summer day or something funny, a story between you and her and your other sister that comes to mind all these years later? Something that comes to mind. Uh, we used to, I went to college in Tacoma, Washington at um, PLU, and um, she would come and visit us down there. And sometimes all three of us would go jogging on the on the waterfront. And every time we walked by or jo- jogged by somebody, she would always say, top of the morning to you. And we used to tease her all the time. We'd say, why do you keep doing that? <laughs> and she would just say, because I just like to talk to people. So kind of a funny, funny story. Um, top top of the morning. That's I think that's kind of a British saying. That's interesting. I think it is. Yeah, I, I thought English or, or some sort. But uh, yeah, she was just very friendly and just outgoing. Um, just you know, just a great great sister. And she went to school. Did you say she she went to college? She went to college out in I think out in Baltimore. My dad um, lived out in Baltimore for quite a long time. He recently just moved back to California to retire, um, but she went to a community college out there and played volleyball. Um, I don't remember the name of the school, but she did play out there and then lived in San Francisco for a little bit and then came up to see us um, when my husband was stationed up at Elmendorf in Alaska. What was her major? How did she do in college? And she, I think she was writing. I think, um, you know, English and English major was where she was at at that time. And how long after school did she end up going to Alaska? And and how did that all come about? It seems strange to me that, you know, I've never been to Alaska, but uh, a girl decides to go to Alaska. It seemed to me that during the summer, maybe there would be more action, more fun in, in Washington. Maybe I have that wrong. No, you know, she was actually in San Francisco. And um, my dad ran a youth hostel down there in the Mission District, and she lived down there. So she had, and then they moved out to Baltimore. So she kind of moved with him and then went back to San Francisco and had some friends down there, worked and did some modeling. And then just decided to come up to visit us. You know, Alaska, people want to go up and visit and and see what it's like. And she was adventurous. And so she just came up to, to visit us and then ended up staying. So she really liked that there was beautiful country. And um, my husband traveled a lot. So she got to stay with myself and the kids. Um, and, you know, we had a really good time. So she actually got a job when she got up there as a nanny for two um, doctors that were in the Air Force. And so she went out to their house to nanny during the day. And and uh, worked up there doing that. So, okay. So she comes up there. She's staying with you. She gets this job. And how did she, how was she doing up there? I mean, she, did she enjoy it? Did she plan on staying yeah. for a while? I mean, had she not disappeared, do you think that that's something that she would have stayed in Alaska, or do you think that she would eventually move back to the, the lower forty eight? I think she was she was doing she liked um, being a nanny. She had talked about going to beauty school. She was you know she was young, kind of trying to figure out what she wanted to do with her life. 
And so she was with us working, saving money. Um, there was, my sister had made a comment about this too, that there was, she didn't tell anybody she wanted to leave Alaska. She was pretty happy up there. She really liked um, the little girl that she was um, nannying for. She really loved that family. We had a really good routine going on there at the time that she disappeared. So, but we had had, you know, a lot of questions about that. Like, did she want to leave? Do you think she took off? And we're like, there was zero inclination that she um, would have left. And so, and we were all really, really close. So we didn't, you know, feel like we had secrets between us or, or anything like that. So. Did she make some friends while she was up there? Did she go out on any dates or anything? You're, you're telling the listeners she was a model, tall girl, 5'11". Did she have, I mean, what kind of social life did she have there? Um, you know, she really, we kind of hiked a lot and hung out with the family quite a bit. I think she had become, you know, a little bit bored and wanted to go out and meet somebody. And I think that was really the first time she had gone out was to um, see if she could meet some people. And that's when she went out and met um, met some people. And that's when she met Dave Combs. <laughs> And that'll take us right to that. What can uh, what can you tell us about those days before she disappeared? She had she had gone out and she met Dave and and how did that happen? Well, she went out and she um, wanted to play some pool, and so she went to a bar in Alaska, and she didn't even stay up particularly late. I think she even got home by about ten or eleven, um, and she came home and I said, "Well, how did it go?" <clears throat> and she said that, well, she goes, I met this guy, and I don't really know anything, you know, I don't know if it's going to work out or anything, and she said, you know, if he calls me, great, if not. She didn't seem overly excited about it, or like this was like the guy of her dreams or anything, so, you know, sisters talk, and it was just sort of, you know, just a, just someone she met and didn't make a huge deal out of it, and then a, a few days later, he called and asked her if she wanted to go to the Girdwood Forest Fair, so... I believe she went out maybe like on a Tuesday night and they went out that following Friday and it was 4th of July weekend in 1995. So I remember that date pretty clear. July Um, 1st. Yeah. Had she been to this bar before or was that the, do you think that was the first time her going there? You had told me in a prior conversation, she liked to shoot pool. And in fact, she had her own pool stick. So was this a place that she had gone to shoot pool before? You know, I was, talking to my husband about that and I think that maybe all three of us had gone there maybe once or twice before the three of us had gone to go out you know if I had lucky enough to get a babysitter the three of us went there but I think it was our first time going there by herself um, that I can remember and so she met Dave he might have been there I don't know if he was by himself or he was there with friends I'm not sure if you know that or not but somehow those two met and she might have made, he might have made a little bit of an impression on her. She comes home and she tells you about this guy. Do you think that she was surprised when he called her a few days later? I think she was a little bit surprised. I think she had given he had her phone number, so she obviously had given it to him. Um, and yeah, I, I think a little bit. And so she was a little bit excited to go. You know, she hadn't really gone out with anybody since she had moved up to Alaska. And so I think it was something you know a little bit exciting and. She, um, you know, she went, so she was, she was excited to go. And so 
on July 1st. They made a, a, a date, I guess you'd call it. He came and, and picked her up. And they went up to Girdwood. How far was that from where you live? What can you tell the listeners about Girdwood and the Girdwood Fair? Um, well, we lived on Elmendorf Air Force Base, and I believe it's about 35 minutes, maybe 40 minutes up to Girdwood. Um, he picked her up at 4 o'clock, and we were all kind of curious about him, so we were standing outside of our house, and I remember my son, who was four, was running around and kind of joking with her aunt and said, where are you going? Maybe you should bring a cell phone. I really remember that clearly now that she didn't take one with her at the time. Um, and we were kind of checking him out a little bit. And I remember thinking, um, you know, he didn't, I was not too impressed. <laughs> he was kind of a tall guy, kind of dark jacket, longer hair. I didn't think he was all that attractive, but I thought, you know, my sister, you know, to each their own. So I didn't really think too much, but it was a little concerned. Um, so again, they left there at our house at about four. And I would imagine they got up to Girdwood about quarter to five. Um, it's a drive. It's a very pretty drive up along the coast um, in Alaska. And Girdwood is a uh, is a ski resort town. So it's um, I had not been to the forest fair. We weren't from Alaska, so I wasn't familiar with it. But I imagine you know that food and some bands and just different um, selling different things around in the forest. So when she told me she was going, I was like, oh okay. Um, and so. Did you think that was a little, you had told me if we could talk about this for a moment, you had thought maybe it was a little strange that they would go there. It To me, you made it sound like that wasn't something that maybe 20 something year olds would go to. Yeah, I, I do remember that. I, um, I thought to myself, if you're going to meet somebody, maybe they take you to dinner, they take you to a movie or, you know, you're in Alaska, maybe, you know, go to a lake or something, but it seemed... I was a little concerned because it was so far out of town and I didn't really know what that was about. So it seemed a little odd to me that that would be where you'd go on your first date. So, Okay. Did you get the impression that uh, Dave had ever been up to Girdwood before? That You know, I, I assumed he had because he knew about the fair and he was from Alaska. So I thought, well, I guess he knows what he's doing. If, if he wants to go up there, maybe this is something people do up here. You know, again, we weren't from Anchorage. And so I didn't really know, like, you know, events that went on and such, if mm -hmm. you will. Um, so I thought, okay, that's kind of interesting. But again, um, thought it was a little different. Okay. So he picks her up and we're going to skip ahead a little bit because you, we didn't really, you didn't, of course, find out about the actual facts and, and what, you know, and I think some of the facts are actually still in dispute 22 years later. But when, after he picked her up and they went on their way, at what point did you start to worry about Erin that she hadn't come home? When did it kind of kick in? Well, I guess to say you probably got up there about quarter to five I remember thinking the night before, it's about 10, you know, and I, and I went to sleep. So I fell asleep, I think around 9.30 or 10, and then got a call at 7 a.m. the next morning from Dave Combs wondering if she had made it home. And I immediately panicked. I went into a room down the hallway and she wasn't there. And I thought, oh my gosh, I was... I knew something at that moment had gone wrong because I knew my sister would come home. I knew that she wouldn't stay down there. 
if there was an emergency, she would have called. I mean, it, it, I knew something immediately was wrong. So he said they got separated, and I, I didn't believe him. <laughs> I just thought something has gone horribly wrong. I, I immediately knew that. Did he expound on that? Do you re- this maybe just uh, ask you this? How long did that phone call at last? When he called you to tell you that they got separated the day before July first, do you remember how long that phone call lasted? I, I think it was about five minutes at the longest because I I just immediately panicked. I just thought I got to get off the phone, and I just I knew I had to get to Girdwood because I thought this my gut was he's not going to help us because he didn't know where she was at. And I, we, I hung up pretty quick and got, got ready. Got with two small children, got them ready. And, uh, we drove to the last, I mean, drove up to Girdwood quick. So. Did he give you any explanation of how they got separated it, at that point at 7am on J- July 2nd? Did he give you specific that these are the facts we got there we went in there i turned around she left did he say anything like that you know i i've thought about this a lot and i don't think we talked about it because i think that i got up there and i just my gut said he had done something to her or he knew what had happened and maybe something had gone wrong and he wasn't going to tell me. I just instinctually knew that. So I don't think we had that conversation. In fact, I didn't really get the facts until the FBI told us what he said. That's I, we, we never spoke because I think I was, I knew I was too afraid to really even have a conversation with him because I thought, is this person a murderer? Did he kill my sister? <laughs> so I just, was not going to be anywhere near him. Just to be clear, for the record, at that point when he called you, you did not accuse him of anything. You, of course, no. naturally had suspicions, as anybody would, but that does not mean that he had anything to do with it. But at that point, you did not accuse him of anything or, or anything like that. You were very no, oriented or no, just jumping no, in the no. car and getting to Girdwood. No, not at all. I, there was zero conversation. In fact, we've never had that conversation to this day. Okay. So you jump in the car. Does your uh, husband go with you? He did. My husband and two young children went with us. Um, again, we didn't know anybody up there, and it was 7 o'clock on a, on a Saturday morning. So we we just went together, and um, we drove into Girdwood and stayed there, and we also called the police on the way there. Um, and they told us that because she was 24, they had to wait 40, 48 hours and, you know, and it was 4th of July weekend and they were busy. So that was the, that was the response that we got. So I guess if you can imagine being in a strange town, going to a place I had not been before and trying to find your sister with zero help, it was, it was a pretty frightening situation. So I Got, my husband dropped me off right at the front of the forest fair. I walked in and I remember seeing a stage and there was a microphone up there. And so I found who was ever in charge of that. And I said, she was here last night. Can you call her name out um, and try and find her? She was missing. And so they were very nice and they did that and stopped. They were playing some music and they stopped and announced her name. And, you know, nobody, nobody came forward who had seen her. And so I, my husband and I walked in the woods quite a bit. Um, there was a creek I remember going through. We walked along the creek, and you know we were just 
we just were stuck. We just did not know what to do. So we stayed there for a while, and then we drove home and called relatives and said, hey, this is what's going going on. And, you know, my dad immediately flew up, um, flew out from Baltimore um, to help us. And about three days later, we finally went to the news station and said, here's what happened. And then we were able to get some help from the FBI because she was actually a California resident. And because she had crossed state lines, um, that was became an FBI missing persons case. And that's when we really got some help. But again, it was pretty late. I want to go back to when you first got there. You actually saw Dave when you got there. What can you tell the listeners about that? I did see him there. Um, and I did. I do remember walking up to him. And I don't remember what I said to him, um, but I do remember he was walking across a bridge and he was eating a hot dog. And if you can imagine, I mean, my sisters are, were like my kids. You know, I felt very protective over them. And I just remember thinking, he's eating a hot dog and I'm about ready to throw up because I'm so panicked that I can't find my sister. And he seemed unusually calm. And that's when I thought something's just not right. And so I, I don't remember what he said, but we didn't talk for very long. And then I went back to find my husband. Is it your impression? I mean, he didn't live in Girdwood. He, li- no. he lived down near you. He called you at 7 a.m. that morning. Uh, where did he call you from? It's a great question. I'm not sure if he was down there or if he was back in Anchorage and drove back down. I don't remember that. I don't remember if we talked about that. Because it it would seem uh, crazy to me, and maybe the listeners are thinking about this as well, is that if he drove the whole way back down to the Anchorage area, calls you at 7 a.m., you, of course, jumped in the car probably within 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And he seemingly still beat you up to Girdwood, if not, got there around the same time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It I would... didn't really think about that. He was definitely in the forest fair. I mean, that's I saw him in there. So it would lead me to. I have to tell you that it would lead me to believe that maybe he never went back to Anchorage that night. Maybe he stayed he, up there he somewhere. He may not have. He may have stayed up there. But again, I think I was in such a. You know, I was. 26 and I was mm. in a panic to try and find my sister and again mm. I think what's so hard to grasp about this is that until it actually happens to you you're put in a position where you are so frightened and you are trying to find somebody and you don't feel like you have any help in the world you, you just kind of panic and I, and I know I did and probably should have asked some better questions and such but I, I just was like I gotta find her and so I just thought and I, I remember thinking, too, she's got to be here somewhere. But I also felt like I knew something had been had gone terribly wrong because she would have called us to say she wasn't coming home or she just would have come home. So you talked to Dave. He called you at 7 a.m. that morning and really didn't was not very specific about what happened. And then you saw him face to face. You got to look him right in the eye up there in Girdwood. Mm-hmm. At that point, did he tell you what happened? I don't think he did because I I don't feel again like I knew that information until the FBI told me that information. I don't think I asked. When you were going through the fair that of course was still going on that next day, you're looking for 
did you happen upon anybody who saw Aaron in the fair the day before? I did not. I There were so many people there, and so it just felt pretty overwhelming. We went up, I think because I had gone to where the microphone was at, and asked the fair, whoever was in charge of it, to say, hey, can you call her name out? When no one came, um, we just were, you know, we just walked around for a while and then we went back because we just didn't know what to do. And so tell the listeners a little bit about, of course, you went up there July 2nd, um, of course, did not have a lot of luck. How did the police, you told me that the police, of course, kind of blew you off a little bit. And then you finally, they finally got involved when you went to the media TV station up there. What went on then? Um, I, a girlfriend of my neighbor and I walked in, we drove to the, and I just, I remember very clearly, I walked into the news station and they had all the cubicles sitting around. And I just said, kind of in a, not in a loud, not yelling or anything. I just said, Hey, I need somebody who can come and help help me. I've got a missing person, and I really need some help. And then a couple of reporters came over and chatted with me, and then we were able to get it on the news. And once it hit the news, it it took off pretty well because then the police, you know, obviously came to our house. The FBI came to our house, um, and we had a lot of notoriety and a lot of stories that played on TV. We got fly, the FBI did flyers and kind of gave some us and some instruction on how to handle the situation. So that when we went to that news station is really when we started to get some help. And I believe that was probably on Monday because, again, it was the 4th of July weekend and everything was closed. And what did the police and the FBI do? Do you think that, um, of course, unfortunately, Aaron's case is still unsolved. Do you think that the FBI added anything to the investigation? I mean, what were your impressions of them? Because I have to tell you that I've probably only dealt with maybe one or two other cases on Unfound so far where the FBI was actually involved. What what can you tell uh, uh, the listeners about the FBI in this circumstance? Um, my gut says is that because we went to the media, somebody at the state trooper's office got a phone call and said, what the heck is going on? Is, is how it appeared to me. I don't know if that's exactly what happened. Um, but then we were told that because Aaron had crossed the state line, that's when the FBI, FBI takes over the case is what we were told. So the FBI came in, they interviewed everybody in our family um, and kind of started there. Um, I know that they went to interview Dave Combs, um, and he was even going to take a polygraph test, but I guess he walked into the state trooper's office and his attorney said, don't do the polygraph test. And because we did not have any physical evidence, we could not, um, you know, there's a right to incriminate. We couldn't do anything. We didn't have it. We didn't have a, a stitch of evidence. We didn't have a body. We didn't have clothing, blood, we didn't have anything. And so he had the right to walk out of there and then they couldn't, you know, the FBI and state troopers couldn't do anything. So that's really when we hit a, hit a, hit a wall. Did the police or the FBI find out anything about Dave Combs in those days and weeks after her disappearance uh, that caught your attention? I mean, obviously when he came to your house and picked Aaron, up on July 1st, you virtually you virtually knew nothing about him. 
Did you learn more about him in those weeks, or did that take some time before you found out what like what his job was, and if he had any brothers or sisters or, or anything like that? Did you find out any of that information? That that took time. I mean, we the it was we were not given any information, and again, I think it was because it was an open investigation. It was they were trying to keep you know, the information that they did have private so that they would only have access to that information. I didn't find out anything about where he worked or anything up until really probably three or four or five years ago when I just started to kind of dig into the case again Mm. and found out that his family has a Combs Metal um, business in Anchorage um, and, and that sort of thing. But again, not a whole lot about him. Um, personally, so okay, which made it all the more tough. So, did uh, did I misunderstand you? Um, you had told me you'd said that nobody had seen her in the fair, but I just want to clear something up. I thought you had told me in a prior conversation that somebody had recognized her. Was that something that the FBI told you later? Maybe you can clarify that at this point. Yeah, sure. No, I did. I did tell you that the um. There, Aaron stopped by a tattoo um, table, if you will, or a vendor up there, and the police had told us that um, the vendor had recognized her and actually had a conversation with her. I couldn't really tell you. I think they just talked about tattoos. Aaron had a a rose tattoo kind of by her shoulder, Um, and I think that they had a conversation about that, but that was about all that I knew. Um, that vendor did call me a few years ago um, and said, hey, I always wondered if we had, if they had found her and I was the last one to talk to her. And I think she said that they had talked about the, getting a tattoo or about the tattoo business or something. So, yeah. Okay. So then, so that, did you find out that that vendor had seen her when you went up on July 2nd or is that something you found out later or was that something that the FBI found out? I believe that's something the FBI find out. I didn't find that out. They uh, they must have told me that. Yeah. Okay, so the FBI went through the fair, happened upon this vendor who he or she thought that uh, Aaron had stopped by that booth on July 1st and had talked to them, at least for a little bit. Right, and maybe I should go back a little bit to um, a few things that the police did tell us is that I so okay. I believe Aaron and, and Dave got there around 4.45 and then went into the fair for a little while together and then went back to the car. And that's when he said that the um, the lights had been left on and the battery was dead. So I did find that out when I did call up there. And when you called up there, when? Um, just like a week and a half ago. Okay, okay so... Sorry if I'm jumping around a little bit. That, that's fine. So what happened was the, you went up there, searched for a few days, the FBI is there, and then at some points the police did talk to Dave, and his story was that, yes, they did go into the fair, and uh, forever long, an hour or two hours or whatever, and then they came back out, and when he came back out, he discovered that he had left the lights on in his car, the battery was dead. He right. goes somewhere maybe to get jumper cables or something, he comes back. She's gone. She's gone. So what is curious to me about the story, I guess, a little bit is in Alaska, it's light until 11 o'clock at night. So I was a little curious why the, that. I was also a little curious. They were only in the fair for an hour. That seemed like a really short 
period of time to drive 40 miles out of town. They only go in for an hour and then they come back out. Um, when I was talking to my dad about just kind of refreshing our memories about this part of the story, my dad made the comment that um, Kat, that Aaron would have got out of the car and tried to fix the car herself. She was just that kind of a person. And I always also thought she would have never stayed at the car. She would have went with him because she just wasn't somebody who was going to sit and kind of wait. She would have either asked somebody for some jumper cables herself or she would have walked with him to go get the jumper cables. I, I don't, I didn't understand a reason why she would stay at the car. That was always a curious part of the story for me. Did you get the impression when the police did uh, tell you this like a week and a half later, did you get the impression that they believed it or they didn't believe it? Um, just a, I, maybe just a gut reaction to it. I got the impression they didn't believe it. That was my, that was my gut. They didn't say that, but that was just my gut. Okay. Is it possible that this the story might have been true and Dave did go to get cables because you had been told that Aaron was seen talking talking to this person at this tattoo parlor in the fair, but she was sighted, but Dave was not seen with her. Is it possible that she he left to go get the cables and she decided, you know what, in the meantime, I'm just going to go back in and look around. And that's why Dave wasn't seen with her at that point. Is that possible? It's a, it's a great point that you bring that up because when I asked um, the new detective on the case to review the summary, he thinks that they were at the tattoo desk together and then went back to the car together is what he understood the summary to read from okay. the interview from the question, if that makes sense. Okay, and later in this interview, we're going to talk about uh, the new detective on the case. Okay. To this day, do you have uh, – you had said that earlier in this, in this interview about the FBI, and the impression that you've given, I, I guess, is that Dave Combs' his story has changed a little bit. Can you give – how his story has changed and maybe different versions of what happened that day. I think there's a few different versions that I thought. And again, it's been 22 years, but the version I thought is that he told the police that their car had broken down on the side of the road on the way to Girdwood. And I really thought that for, I bet I believe that part of the story for about 15, 20 years, even um, when I had the detective go through the summary again, this was sort of a second story, if you will, that he told about the car breaking down at the fair. So there's definitely some different versions of what happened. And I had always thought, how could a car that's driving have a dead battery? I didn't get that. But he then said, no, it broke down in there. So I do think that there's a few different versions of what happened because it's a pretty key point of them getting separated. Um, I thought, did she hitchhike? Did she get you know, did she, where she stuck? I mean, I really thought she maybe got into a car because she was stuck on the side of the road and he said, no, they were actually in there. But I do think when he was questioned that there were a few different versions of what happened at that point. The right. car is a pretty key, key point to the story. I agree. And if the listeners go out and start doing their own research on Aaron's case, they're going to find, if you, you go to the popular forums or sites out there like Charlie Project, Web Sleuth, Reddit, some other places, that there are different versions of what happened. You're going to read the the battery died version. 
you're going to read the car broke down on the side of the road version. And there might even be uh, a third version out there as well. And I guess the reason these versions exist is because, at least to your knowledge, do you to this day exactly know where Dave Combs' car was parked when he said it broke down? I don't. I don't know that. And the police or the FBI have never told you that in the last 22 years? No. No. So it's got to be. It's obviously... That's the question. <laughs> right. Okay. That we don't have an answer to. Okay. Um, being that uh, Dave had asked Aaron to go up to Girdwood for this fair, I think that, as you said before, it's reasonable to believe that he had been there before. Maybe he had been to the fair before, maybe in a prior year. Or, or something. And this is going to take yeah, us sure. to to another part of this. It's going to be at least a little conspiratorial, maybe a, a tiny bit, but it is relevant. Um, Dave actually knew people up in Girdwood, Alaska, didn't he? Yeah, I, I, I believe he went to Diamond High School. I believe he lived um, kind of on the hills or going out to... Um, to Girdwood, there's an area actually fairly close to where the business is, and I believe he knew he he knew the community out there. He went to high school there. His family lived there. They ran a business there, so I believe he probably had friends up in um, up in Girdwood. Probably had cabins up there. Yeah, I think there was probably a lot more to it. I guess that I didn't know living there because we were new to the area and obviously didn't know Dave at all. Okay, you had but you had gotten a call. From a woman in Oregon. And what yeah. can you tell the listeners about this? And this kind of takes us in, and we're going to talk about two names that, that people should know, Ted Stevens and Joseph Bohm, B-O-E-H-M. What did the woman in Oregon t- that called you tell you? Yeah, she, um, I got a call a few years ago, sort of out of the blue, um, that there are quite a few missing people not only in Alaska, but specifically in Girdwood that have disappeared. And she had hired a private investigator and they, you know, put together kind of a board that, you know, how can we um, find some similarities with these ladies who have disappeared and are there any connections? And the connections that she found were um, Ted Stevens and Joseph Bohm. Specifically, Joseph Bohm had... um, had owned Alaska Industrial Hardware. They were part of the community up there. They knew Ted Stevens and they knew Bill Allen, who was an oil guy up there. So some pretty wealthy people. And had she told me that um, there were parties at Ted Stevens' cabin and that these people um, were sort of into some drugs. And I'm not saying specifically Ted Stevens, but just maybe the kids of these people and there was just sort of a culture up there that was going on. Um, and so I looked it up. I, I thought, okay, this is some pretty pretty big names. This is um, Yeah, maybe people we should t- say that Ted Stevens is a former senator from Alaska. Uh, he is right. dead now. Uh, he died in a plane crash in 2010. But he had come under some allegations of corruption. Uh, and he actually lost his reelection 
uh, not long before he died in the plane crash. So the last few years of his time as a senator from Alaska, he had gotten in some trouble, and it did involve uh, this other guy, Joseph Bohm. So I just wanted to clear up if people don't know who Ted Stevens is. So please yeah, continue. You. Um, do you Just for the record, you'd never heard of this woman before. Did you check her out? Um, um, to make I sure that she not. was telling to tr the telling the truth, or I mean, what what kind of research did you do if you could on her? And we don't want to say her name before you kind of went down this path. Yeah, I you know I totally was skeptical as well because you know over the years people will write stories about missing people, and you know I was like, how does this gal even get my phone number? Um, but she had looked up Aaron is um how she found me and then found my name, looked me up on Facebook is how she found me. But I did go back. I looked at the names that she had given me and some of the people who had disappeared. And I have also, on if you just go to Alaska State Troopers, they have missing people on there. So I had already done some of that research and knew that there were quite a few girls that had disappeared in Girdwood. So when she called me and said, hey, I've got some theories, I had already kind of gotten to that point. So what she told me I, I sort of knew. I did not know about the Ted Stevens, Joseph Bowman, Bill Allen case because it was a huge case up there. Um, so I did do the reading on that, and she was pretty dead on about um, some of the um, culture and the partying and mm -hmm. stuff that had gone up there. So it was just a piece of information that I had not been privy to because I just didn't know the area up there. So that's what I did and what she told me. I, I knew a lot of it but I had never been able to connect Aaron to, to some of these people or the area again, just cause I didn't know them and, and still don't know them very well. But I, she was helpful in the fact that um, a few years ago, we did go up to the cabins that were behind the Girdwood forest fair. And we went to Ted Stevens cabin. We looked around up there just because I hadn't done it before. So we went up mm -hmm. on the sky cam up at Alyeska. We looked over the area and just some things that we had not done before. So okay. Let's go. Let's, that. let's come back to this second. But in that time, let's say between late 1995 to 2000, let's say 10, okay. were there any leads, any suspicions? Did the police or the FBI come to your family and say, you know, we're looking at this guy? This thing popped up. We're looking at maybe a serial killer. Did anything like that go on in those 15 years? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Dead, sil dead silence. Dead silence. We had, I had sort of on my own looked if I heard if there was a serial killer and then again had gone through all those people who, because there are a ton of people who have, have disappeared up there. They're, I looked at all of them. I tried to connect them. And I think what I found is that Aaron just didn't connect. There was no connection between maybe an Alaska native person or a prostitute or somebody who had a drug problem. I, I couldn't connect even where we lived. I mean, I looked at every type of angle and I just couldn't connect it. Um, again, I'm not a professional detective or anything mm -hmm. that did my best because I knew that there just wasn't anything going on up in Alaska as far as a lead or anything. So I thought if someone's going to find her, it's going to have to be me and my family. And I, I'm sure you have heard, and I, I know a lot of the listeners have heard about this. I have a lot of very educated listeners when it comes to disappearances. Uh, you've probably heard of the Highway of Tears, these women who have disappeared along that stretch of highway. 
up there, very desolate parts of uh, of uh, North American continent. You don't believe that there was no connection that you've ever been told about with the police or the FBI that they think that Aaron could have been part of that. No, I, I we couldn't find anything, and I had. When I asked, I did ask those questions a couple years ago. Um, I didn't ask them, you know, right when she disappeared. I wasn't really familiar with missing people at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I um, I looked up a lot of those cases and the people, and I, I couldn't find a college student. I couldn't find somebody who maybe lived on the Air Force Base. I, I just couldn't find anything because it seemed like those people just had some different stories than Aaron had. So, and even when you look at the pictures of the missing people, she just, she doesn't fit in and she does stand out as somebody who's just different from that. So I don't know if that's a good answer, but that's kind of where my head was at when I was looking through all this stuff. Okay. Getting back to Ted Stevens and Joseph Bohm, they, Mm -hmm. the connection we're making here is that you believe that Dave Combs was actually friends with some of these the maybe Ted Stevens children and maybe some younger people who knew Joseph Bohm and they had these cabins up in Girdwood. Right. So I, you know, in, in Alaska industrial hardware, I mean, Jay, Dave Combs is a metal, you know, he does a metal business. I mean, that's what he does. And so I would imagine if this people lived up on the Hill and he went to high school with them and he's doing the same type of work. I just believe there was, they at least knew each other and, you know, young kids going up to people's ski cabins and they're skiing up there and drinking and having parties, that's not a hard connection for me to make that maybe Erin would have gone to one of those cabins if she was taken there. So that was one thing I thought, that's a possibility. So that's why we went up to just kind of look around. Not that I knew what I was looking for or was going to find anything, but I just felt like when I go to Girdwood, I have to walk that area because I feel like she was there. And is there anything that I could find or see or listen to from somebody or anything that would help me figure out the answer to where she is? Yeah, and I, and we're not going to necessarily include Ted Stevens in this, but Joseph Bohm, uh, there were allegations that uh, he was involved with underage girls and drugs yeah. and prostitution. Yeah. And if any of the listeners want to look into it, you will see the connection between Ted Stevens there was the the allegation I think that was true that Ted Stevens had some work done on his place in Girdwood elsewhere by Joseph Bohm Industrial Hardware, right. paid for by the taxpayers he should have been paying for himself. Mm-hmm. And then once they started looking at Joseph Bohm, they found all these other crazy things going on uh, underneath the surface. Yeah. And and that Dave Combs said he went to a cabin to go find help. So he did. I do remember him saying that that was part of one of the stories that was told. So when this gal called me a few years ago and said, hey, did you know about the cabins? That clicked for me because I was like, he said he went to a cabin. But I don't know any more of the investigation that went off with whose cabin he went to. That's just private police information that I don't I don't have. Okay. Now you also everybody should also know that Joseph Bohm is not with us either. He has died, and he said something on his deathbed. What did he say? He did. What did he, what did he, he say? Said, he said he knew where the girls in Girdwood were, something like that. I mean, pretty close to that. He he knew 
where the dead girls were. And so, and that is another reason that prompted this gal down in Oregon to call me because she knew that Aaron had disappeared in Girdwood. So um, that's, again, why she called as well. That was actually the main reason she called is because he had said that on his deathbed. And again, that was like, oh my gosh, what a piece of information. And so that's when I started to kind of dig in to what Dave Combs, like, what is he doing now? Um, and could I connect it? And again, maybe a bit of a stretch, but I think probably not a stretch that he knew these people up there. And that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a ski resort town. People are at a bar. They're maybe drinking. They're having parties at cabins. That, and then Aaron was there with somebody who knew all these people. So, you know, when you're looking for somebody who's missing, you're gonna you're gonna look pretty hard. And that was a pretty key piece of information that was given to us a few years ago. And we have to remind the listeners is that this wasn't just any average weekend. This was July Fourth weekend. So if anybody was going to be up at their cabin during the summer, it would probably be this weekend. Exactly. It was packed up there. So it's, uh, as I've told you, and maybe it's possible that Dave Combs, you know, we early in this conversation, we said, well, it's maybe a little odd for two 20 year old 20 somethings to go up to see this fair. Well, it may be the reason that Dave Combs asked Aaron to go up there wasn't to go to the fair, but to go to these parties that were going on at these cabins that were being these, these parties that were being thrown by these rich Alaskans. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, okay. Definitely. You here's probably one of the most, at least something that caught my attention, and we have to remind the listeners that you had said that for ten, for fifteen years, nothing has gone on. Nothing went on. Of course, we've had some action recently. You told us we talked about the call from the woman in Oregon, and we're going to be talking about a new detective. For, for fifteen years, you were under the impression that really nothing had been going on. In Aaron's case, but you actually went up there and talked to the police. I don't know what year it is. You can fill the listeners in and something. They showed you something that seems to contradict what you were thinking. Tell the listeners about that. Yeah, I think, gosh, I was going to say three years ago, um, my husband and I went up to Alaska just to go meet with a detective and say, hey, what, what has been going on? And, and, we were brought into a conference room and because I called and said I wanted to see a copy of the file. And when I got there, um, we were brought into a room and two very large binders were, um, were brought in that were Aaron's case. And I was completely floored. I couldn't believe that they had done that much work. Um, I mean, how I, thick I with how thick were these binders? Would you say? I would say the binders and I, I mean, I, I was trying to measure with my hand. I'd say about nine, ten inches a piece. Oh I couldn't believe it. So I felt, I felt better. I guess that there had been a very, they had done a lot of work. Um, and again, when I had asked for a copy of it, they said that well, we can make a copy, but every date, phone number, social security name is going to be blocked out. So I thought, well, then that's silly. I mean, I I felt, I guess I felt sort of appeased, if you will, that they had done a pretty darn good job. They just needed some leads is what they needed. So I looked through some things, but again, it was so much was blocked out that I couldn't get a real feel. 
but they had definitely interviewed and, and really had, I felt had done a really good job. So I was like, holy cow. So I walked away from that feeling tremendously better. It's just something my family and I had never done. We had never gone up to see how much work they had done. So that was, I felt better about that. It's very, it's very curious. Uh, they, very curious, of course, the yeah. police and the FBI get involved back in two or 1995. Not much comes of it. Of course, they talk to Dave Combs. They talk to other people. They accumulate all this information. But after that, doesn't seem to you like not much is going on. But then when they finally show you the foul, they show you two binders that are nine inches thick a piece. Yeah, I mean it was it was they were big so. I don't, I don't know what to make of that. I have to tell you that, you know, covered a lot of disappearances and a lot of people have seen police files. I think that that is the largest file that I've ever heard. Yeah, I was shocked. I mean, we, we were completely shocked Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I think, because again, like you said, we had not heard anything and it felt like again, you know, for a few weeks, Right after she disappeared, we were on the news, we were interviewed, you know, we were interviewed by the um, FBI. You know, there was that that went on. But again, as soon as that kind of roar ended after a few weeks, my dad went back to Baltimore. We kind of tried to go back to our lives as best we could. Um, I would go out at night and hang up flyers all over the city of uh, Anchorage by myself. Um, but to see that, it, it was stunning because it felt like we should have known more, I guess. Um, you know, I'm not sure, but it was, I was stunned. While you were there, you actually got to talk to the police and you had told them about uh, going up to the cabins. What did they say to you about that? They said they didn't think that was a very good idea. Um, I think they, I didn't, I just said, what do you think about this Ted Stevens case and Joseph Bones? They wouldn't touch it with a 10 foot pole. And then when I said I went up there and walked around the backside of the cabin, um, just I just looked. <laughs> you know, just the cabin was for sale at the time, so we could peek inside the front door. I, I walked around the backyard. I just couldn't get out of my head that if there was parties there and she was there, and things bad things were going on there, that I just I had to stand there in that yard and just look around. I mean, I, you know, who knows what I was looking for, but we stood there for a long time, and the police said they didn't like that I did that. But so, uh, I so. want to get back to that just for a moment. You had mentioned Ted Stevens and Joseph Bohm to these policemen, and what was their reaction? They wouldn't really say anything. They just said, they probably said, oh, I mean, they just, we're not going to have a conversation about it. So I said, okay. Anything that you saw, I know all the names and anything uh, that were redacted is, I guess, the word. Uh, anything in those files that you got to see, and I'm sure you didn't go through all 18 inches of them, but anything in no. there that, that could have been construed to, to mean that they might have looked into Ted Stevens or Joseph Bohm regarding Aaron's disappearance? No, not at all. I don't think I even... No, I didn't look. I didn't even look mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. I think because they were didn't seem. I didn't know. I don't know if not interested is the right word or didn't want to talk about it. They obviously knew about the case because it was such a big case in Anchorage. They weren't. They they didn't say a word about it. So I, I don't know what that meant. Okay. But I didn't look in the binder for it. Okay. 
Uh, when they when their reaction when you brought up the did they the, did they seem afraid or did they think that oh here you know here's some conspiracy theorist what was your impression did they what was your impression just saying that to him what how, what was their body language if if I could ask you that my impression was that I could be not safe doing that I didn't get the impression they thought I was a conspiracy theorist whatsoever I just felt like they thought. I was like being like a rogue detective out there by myself or something. And they just didn't think that was a good idea. Um, mm. I didn't really get it because I didn't feel unsafe. It felt eerie maybe being up there and not knowing that those cabins were there because I hadn't mm. looked before. So it was, I think it was uncomfortable me looking around in the yard trying to see some, you know, evidence of a sister who disappeared 22 years ago. But it was the next piece of evidence I had. So I had to go look for it. Okay. What have you learned uh, about Dave Combs since then? Um, again, I have learned that he, I believe, went to Diamond High School, that he runs a Combs metal shop in Anchorage. Um, I looked at the value of the the uh, real estate. It was over a million dollars that is there. Um I have Does learned, he have any brothers or sisters or anything like that? Parents? He what? has brothers, sisters. He has, I believe, a brother who had committed a homicide and was in jail. I believe one of his parents is Native American, one is not. Um, I couldn't find a record on him. I looked up, did some background checks and things. Um, that's, about, that's about all I know. You don't know if he's gotten married since then, don't know if he's any children or anything like that? I do not. I believe that there are some nieces and nephews. Um, sometimes it's hard to track who's related to mm -hmm. you, um, but I do not know. And uh, just to say that one more time, you, you just told the listeners that uh, Dave Combs does have a brother that committed a murder. I, I believe he does. Okay, you know what year that might have happened, or was that before or after Aaron disappeared? That is a great question. I, I don't know the answer to that. Okay. I'm not sure. Okay. Let's talk about more recently, uh, very recently, as a matter of fact. Um, and I'm going to give you uh, whatever you want to say about this is fine. I know that um, you've had some recent conversations with the police. There's a new detective. What can you tell listeners about that? How did you find that out? Yeah, well, well, I'll give you a little bit of credit, Ed, for that, because I, um, you know, got an email from Ariel up in Anchorage saying, um, kind of introduce the two of, two of you and I. Yes. And so there were parts of the story that I just wanted to clarify, because it has been 22 years. So I called up to the um, Anchorage State Troopers and asked, for a detective gallon who used to be in the cold case unit, but they had closed that unit. So I was surprised that they said they'd actually hired a new detective and his name is detective McFerrin, um, and had a nice conversation with him and, um, and was excited that he was going to, he said he was going to read up on the case and see if there was anything that he could do or find since he was unfamiliar with the case. So I was, I felt that that was encouraging having a new person, look at the case with some fresh eyes so he was supposed to call me back in a few days and i'm sure we'll touch base here soon enough so all right great i'm, I'm glad to hear uh that yeah. that, that, is, that that's happening but 
there has been the possibility out there. There was a, a murder of a woman named Bonnie Craig that at one time thought might have been, been able to be connected to Aaron's disappearance, but you're not a big believer in that. Can you tell, you tell the listeners why? Yeah, why? Because um, I got to know Karen Foster because Bonnie um, Craig was murdered about nine months before Aaron disappeared um, down down that highway. I can't think of the creek. McHugh, I think it's McHugh Creek that she was found in. And some people tried to make some connections, including myself, um, that they that that was connected because there were two young girls who kind of looked alike. Um, Bonnie had longer, darker hair. They were young. They were kind of clean-cut um, girls. And, and Bonnie, unfortunately, was murdered. Um, Karen helped me figure out that it wasn't the person who had murdered him because he was actually in jail at the time that, uh, that uh, Aaron disappeared. And um, she has been a Karen Foster. Her mom has been a great help to me. Just, um, just the stick-to-itiveness that she went through to find Bonnie's killer and use DNA, and then has done some amazing things. Um, but she was able to find out that information for me, and she found out that he was actually in jail the time that Aaron disappeared. Because for a long time we thought the cases were connected, just from the timing and, and that they were sort of alike in some ways. So the so there's no way that this could be the work of the same uh, person, not a serial killer type of situation. No, he no. is actually in jail. He was sentenced, I believe, to 99 years in prison. I don't remember his name, but oh I can find out. I do need to ask you about another sighting of Aaron uh, that happened possibly on that day. There, there was a sighting possibly of her, because we need to talk about this because I know some readers are going to happen upon it out there on the Internet. Uh, a sighting at a donut shop. Do you do you believe this sighting or not? You know, I I don't know if I do. I've I've been to that donut shop many times. Um, I I sort of don't believe it, only because I think we would have some more information um, about Aaron, if that makes sense. I, I think the the gal that spoke to her at the tattoo table really had a conversation with her, but I don't think they have that good of information. It was more of a, oh, I think I saw somebody who looked like her down there. So it just seemed sort of some light information, if you will, and nothing ever came of that. And the other thing, too, is that donut shop is a, probably a mile down the road, and I have a hard time believing that Erin would have um, stopped to go get a donut when she was you know, lost or something. It didn't really make a whole lot of sense for myself or people in my family. So. And once again, this is a sighting of Aaron by herself, not Aaron with Dave. Right. Run into quite a few of these cases where people say they have seen somebody and it's really not the case. It's very common in all sorts of different types of cases. People trying to think they're being helpful and they're not really. They're just... Sure. It becomes like a little bit of a wild goose chase, people wanting to yeah. insert themselves into the story. Right. What has this been like for you and for your family since 1995, Stephanie? Um, it has been terrible. I mean, you, um, you know, I know people have family members who passed away in a car wreck or they, you know, in a boating accident or, you know, some, or get cancer or something or they, they die, but when you have somebody in your family who just disappears 
and you have zero information, it doesn't it doesn't ever go away. So it's you wake up, you think about it, you go to the grocery store, you see somebody who looks like her, you know, and I live in a town in Everett, Washington that everybody knows Aaron and everybody knows us. We're well connected in the community. We went to high school here, our grandparents, our parents went to high school here. I mean, we know everybody who is around here. So it's, you know, you see all of her friends grow up and have kids and get married. And, you know, and Erin's not there to do that. And so, it, it, you know, we miss her. And then not to be able to bury her. You know, we want to bring her home. And uh, and you've mentioned uh, your father. Uh, I'm not, I'm unclear uh, about your mother. You know, your your father took part in the search. What about your mother? Or maybe she... Yeah, my she passed away. She was, um, you know, mentally ill most of her life, um, but loved us dearly. And, you know, she she passed away probably, oh, I think it's been about eight years ago. Um, we were able to tell her that um, Aaron had been missing and stuff. I'm not sure how much she comprehended, but they were extremely close. Aaron looked just like my mother. Um, and, uh, yeah, so my dad is remarried. I need to ask you this because I ask all of my, most of my guests, I should say, this question. Stephanie, what do you think happened, Erin? I think that she, I don't, I don't think she ever left Girdwood. I think something happened there, whether she was attacked, um, whether she was brought somewhere, whether she was given some drugs. I mean, something, something awful happened to her, I believe, in Girdwood, and I, I think she died there. I think, um, I don't know, I think Dave Combs has more information than what he's telling us, um, and, and we want to know that information, we want to bring her home, so that's that's what I think happened. Um, I don't think she left the States, I don't think she, I think we would have just heard more information, but I think something terrible happened in Bergen that night, and uh, we don't know what it was or what happened, um, but we'd like to know, and we'd like to, again, bring her home. And we should say for the record that uh, Dave Combs is, is a free man. Uh, he's innocent until proven guilty. And Absolutely. even though you may have suspicions, I may have suspicions, and I'm sure the listeners are going to have a lot of suspicions, uh, he may be perfectly innocent This in, in this, or it may be that just because he knows something that maybe he's held back for years doesn't mean that he is guilty of a crime. You know, there's all sorts of strange circumstances out there, but uh, um, we just have to keep our minds open to that. But it, it is possible that uh, he may know some things and is afraid to say it's possible. Yep. Okay. I would agree. Stephanie, where can the listeners find you on social media, on the internet, um, I'm, of course, going to be linking uh, to like the Charlie Project page. Uh, I know that there is a forum on Web Sleuths, uh, but uh, I know that you're planning to start a Facebook page and maybe do some other things. What can you tell the listeners about that? Yeah, I'm going to, I would say it's probably going to take me a week or two to put it together. I'm going to call the web, the Facebook page, Finding Aaron Gilbert. Um, and we do have a $25,000 reward leading to an arrest and conviction of the person who um, is responsible for Aaron not being with us anymore. 
um, and we will put some flyers out. So in about a week or so, that page should be should be up, um, and we could correspond on that page. I think would be a great thing. My name is Stephanie Gilbert, whereas my sister is Catherine Gilbert. Um, so and again, um, but I think this would be the main page where we could connect on. Or in yours, Ed. I've looked at yours, and it looks wonderful. So oh, you're very kind. Thank, well. thank you. Yeah, yeah, the Unfound Podcast Discussion Group, uh, a lot of good conversation goes on there, and I, I know that you're a member there, and I think you're going to find that it, it's a very safe atmosphere where you can communicate with the listeners. There's no trolls in there. Just not anybody can just walk in there and start saying things. So I, I hope that uh, my listeners in, engage with you you know, in the, in the days, weeks, and months, if not years, uh, you know, hopefully we'll get this case solved immediately. But if it's not that quick, uh, you know, I, I know the listeners want to help you in, in any way that they can. So uh, I'll be sure to link to the Facebook page or websites or whatever else, the things that may be coming um, as soon as they're up, as soon as they're happening. Yeah, thank you very much. I uh, cannot tell you how much we appreciate your um, doing this interview and then any news that we could get on Aaron is, is always helpful. So thank you again, Ed. You're welcome. Any last words before we finish this interview, Stephanie? No, I think I think we've I think it's good. Okay. Stephanie, I deeply appreciate you being on this episode of Unfound. Thank you very much, Ed. Much appreciated. You're welcome. And that was my August 2017 interview with Stephanie Juarez, sister of Aaron Gilbert. I deeply appreciate her being on that episode over six years ago. I also need to thank a listener. Her name is Ariel, who made the interview possible. In the original summation, if you go back and listen to it, I did way more theorizing than I would ever do today at least publicly. So for today's December 2023 new one, you're going to hear a more traditional type of commentary with me applying what I think I've learned and I should say what all of you might have learned about disappearances since that original publication date in August of 2017. First and foremost, all of you in the audience should be able to identify that this is a the man said type of disappearance. Dave says he left to get help. When he came back, Aaron was gone. And like many the man said disappearances, there's no proof that anything Dave said is true. No proof that his car wouldn't start. No proof that he went for help. For example, nobody has ever come forward saying, oh yeah, I remember him. He said his car broke down. And no proof that Aaron was standing by the car waiting for Dave to come back. The problem, just because there's no proof, does not mean none of this happened. And yeah, Dave's story doesn't make a lot of sense. Why didn't he and Aaron go together to find jumper cables? Now that we've identified the type, we can start looking at other disappearances in Unfound's catalog can they help us solve Aaron's case? A good place to start, how many women have gone missing not long after meeting men for the first time? The problem, we only have one disappearance where we are sure this happened. Can you name it? The answer, 
is Zoe Campos, murdered on the very same day she met Carlos Rodriguez. He murdered her and put her in his backyard, and she wasn't found for five years. Carlos is now in jail. Yes, I know there's speculation and very solid theories about other missing women unfound as featured, where we believe new men caused their disappearances. Brandy Wells, Brenda Condon, Paige Renkowski with her encounter on the highway. But no proof this is what happened. In fact, we all know that women are much more likely to be killed by men they've known for a long time than ones they've known for just a week or so. Meaning, this stat is in Dave's favor. But, just like the no-proof section from a few moments ago, this doesn't mean Dave didn't kill Aaron. This is just one more data point. Going back to Zoe's murder, what we now know is Carlos was a violent guy. In fact, that's what eventually led to his arrest in 2018. He had assaulted another woman. And it turns out, he had been violent for a long time, well before he met Zoe. Whereas with Dave Combs, I've never heard anything like that. For example, has he ever gone to jail for assault of anyone, man or woman? In addition, what has he done with his life over the past 28 years? Any other missing women connected to him? I don't think so. What I'm saying is, a theory that Dave caused Aaron's disappearance is certainly a viable one. Just as viable as it was in 1995 or in 2017 when the original Unfound episode came out. We can think that Dave wanted to do adult stuff with Aaron, she didn't want to do that, and things got violent. Unfortunately, this happens every day on the earth and is probably happening as I'm recording this sentence. But most of those men get caught. To continue to compare and contrast Carlos and Dave, Carlos was in his own city, in his own home. This is how he was able to control the narrative for so long, until his need to continue to rape women got him caught. Whereas Dave was in an unfamiliar city, all he had was his vehicle. Keep in mind that there's no proof the two went to the cabin mentioned in the interview. But somehow, if Dave is responsible, he has gotten away with it for 28 years in an unfamiliar city with only his car as a possible crime scene. Whereas, Carlos could control everything and he still got caught in five years. Something to think about. One more point, and I'm not saying you have to believe this. All I'm saying is we can't forget about it. How many walk-offs has Unfound featured in the past seven years? Many. With at least some of those missing people being ones that you would never think would go missing. Jamie Lee, Jason Landry, Kristen Modafferi, Helen Diamond, Chance Engelbert. What I'm saying is, although this is certainly a the man said type of disappearance, it isn't as clear cut as Angela Green's, Rosemary Rapp's, Irene Gakwa's, and many others. So, how does Aaron's case get solved now? I think everyone involved needs to start believing her disappearance didn't occur.
at the last place. If you'd like to hear and read more of my in-depth analysis into the disappearance of Aaron Gilbert, please go to patreon.com forward slash unfoundpodcast, sign up, and partake in the Unfound blog. Until then, I leave the public theorizing up to you. And that's the program. Right now, while you are in your podcast platform, Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, wherever, give Unfound a five-star review, a thumbs up, whatever that platform allows. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've just finished this episode of Unfound.